I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my Big Bag of Onions. They got from Maine to California, broken hearts and bars unknown. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dark radio Had a soul made me so lonely Hands pressed cold against the phone The young stars Convergent evolution, the arrival independently by different species of the same answer to a question posed by nature, is a topic of great interest to biologists. One aspect of the phenomenon which has not yet been much looked at, however, is its underlying genetics. In particular, an issue not previously addressed is how often such changes arise from similar mutations in the two convergent lines, and how often they have different genetic causes that happen to have similar effects on the organism's forms and functions. That has now been rectified by an examination of two creatures which, though only distantly related, share an unusual feeding habit, an unusual anatomical feature, and an unusual name, panda. The giant panda is a black and white bear. The red panda is related to weasels, raccoons and skunks. Their habitats, mountainous areas of southern China and its neighbours, overlap, but their last common ancestor lived 43 million years ago. They do, though, share a limited kinship, for both are members, along with dogs, cats, hyenas, mongooses, seals and so on, of the mammalian order Carnivora, which is curious because both are vegetarian.
you're listening to my big bag of onions. When introduced 40 years ago, the Soviet Skval, or Squall torpedo, was hailed as an aircraft carrier killer because its speed, more than 370 kilometers an hour, that's 200 knots, was four times that of any American rival. The claim was premature. Problems with its design meant Schwal turned out to be less threatening than hoped, or from a NATO point of view, less dangerous than feared, even though it is still made and deployed. But supercavitation, the principle upon which its speed depends, has continued to intrigue torpedo designers. Now, noises coming out of the Soviet Union's successor, Russia, are leading some in the West to worry that the country's engineers have cracked it. Bubbles of vapour, i.e. cavities, form in water wherever there is low pressure, such as on the trailing edges of propeller blades. For engineers, this is usually a problem. In the case of propellers, the cavities erode the blade's substance. Schwal's designers, however, sought by amplifying the phenomenon to make use of it. They gave their weapon a blunt nose, fitted with a flat disc, that creates a circular trailing edge as the torpedo moves forward. They also gave it a rocket motor to accelerate it to a speed fast enough for that edge to create a cavity consisting of a single giant bubble which envelops the entire torpedo except for the steering fins.
In 1907, John D. Hertz, the owner of a taxi firm in Chicago, asked some academics at the University of Chicago to do a piece of research for him. He wanted to know what color he should paint his cabs in order to make them stand out among the sea of black vehicles that then inhabited American city streets. The researcher's conclusion was yellow. Now, more than a century later, a group of researchers at a different university have concluded that yellow was a wise choice for other reasons too. In a study just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Ho Takwar of the National University of Singapore and his colleagues show that yellow taxis are less likely to be involved in accidents. Dr. Ho's research made use of a merger that took place in 2002 between two Singaporean taxi companies. One of the precursor firms had a yellow fleet, the others was blue. The merge concern has continued that bichromatic tradition to this day. At the moment, it owns 4,175 yellow taxis and 12,525 blue ones. All are the same model, a Hyundai Sonata, and all undergo the same maintenance schedules. Any differences in safety between the two, Dr. Ho reasoned, must therefore be caused by their respective colors.
listening to my big bag of onions. I saw an advert on Facebook actually for uh, Flight Aerial Arts, which is a company based in East Bergholt, which invite you along for a free taster session to try out Aerial Hoop and it looked really fun. So me and my friend decided to go along. So basically Aerial Hoop is, there's like a metal frame with a hoop hanging from it in the air. Below you have like a crash mat on the floor and there's an instructor there in the session and she will sort of work with you to show you different moves and then just sort of leave you to practice for a little while which is good because it makes you feel like you're not being watched all the time. The sessions only last about 45 minutes but that's well enough because by the end of the session not only are you physically exhausted, uh, your hands are like burning on fire <laughs> because you're having to hold, not only hold your weight but the material that's wrapped around the hoop to give you sort of friction or grip is, is quite tough on your hands so it gives you sort of like sores. Not sores, I don't want to scare anyone. <laughs> it gives you like, you know, if, if you were going consistently every week for six months, I'm, I think you'd have sort of like hard skin probably on, the, on your hands because it sort of, I think that it builds up to protect your hands a little bit.
And the vessel was called the Pearl, and she was launched in Wivenhoe in 1819. And she was the very first racing yacht on the planet. And from that came the sport of yacht racing, which spread around the world. But up until the Second World War, most of the big yachts were raced by professionals, even if the, the owners and the backers were on board. Uh, but the actual professional yachtsmen came from this river. Um, Brightening Sea, Tolsbury, Wivenhoe, Rowhedge. In no special order, I hasten to add. And they became the professionals and they would fish in the winter and then lay the boats up and become professional yachtsmen in the summer. So the regattas were very important because they could show who uh, was the best sailor. You know, if you won the regatta, then you were going to get a jolly good job come the next summer, which meant you went down to the Mediterranean and you were paid good money. And one of the big, rich playboys um, was a chap called Nottage. His father was Lord Mayor of London, and he travelled all over the world, but he became very keen on yacht racing, especially when the Prince of Wales, who became Edward VII, King Edward VII, he took it up, so everyone who was anyone wanted to suddenly be a yacht racer. So, um, and, and he, was a quite, he, he knew him, and he, he had uh, uh, several yachts himself, but his crews all came from this river, and he got to really like the people of the river, and he wanted to do something for them.
listening to my big bag of onions. The winds of the Oklahoma panhandle have a bad reputation. In the 1930s, they whipped its over-tilled topsoil up into the billowing black blizzards of the Dust Bowl. The winds drove people, Steinbeck's dispossessed, away from their livelihoods and west to California. Today, the Panhandle's steady winds are a force for creation, not destruction. Wind turbines can generate electricity from them at rock-bottom prices. Unfortunately, the local electrical grid does not serve enough people to match this potential supply. The towns and cities which could use it are far away. So Oklahoma's wind electricity is to be exported. Later this year, lawsuits permitting, work will begin on a special cable, 1,100 kilometers or 700 miles long, between the Panhandle and the western tip of Tennessee. There, it will connect with the Tennessee Valley Authority and its 9 million electricity customers. The Plains and Eastern Line, as it is to be known, will carry 4,000 megawatts. That is almost enough electricity to power Greater London.
I have nothing. Nada. Zip. Zilch. Zippo. Nothing smart. Nothing inspirational. Nothing even remotely researched at all. I have absolutely nothing to say whatsoever. And yet, through my manner of speaking, I will make it seem like I do. Like what I am saying is brilliant. And maybe, just maybe, you will feel like you've learned something. Now, I'm going to get started with the opening. I'm going to make a lot of hand gestures. I'm going to do this with my right hand. I'm going to do this with my left. I I'm going to adjust my glasses. And then I'm going to ask you all a question. Uh, by show of hands, how many of you all have been asked a question before? OK, great. I'm seeing some hands. And again, I have nothing here. Now, I'm going to react to that and act like I'm telling you a personal anecdote. Something to break the tension. Something to endear myself a little bit. Something kind of uh, embarrassing. <laughs> and you guys are going to make an awe sound. It's true. It really happened. And now I'm going to bring it to a broader point. I'm going to reel you back in.
be too clean? That is the question posed by the hygiene hypothesis, which seeks to explain why as many illnesses have become rarer in rich countries, some have become more common. The hygiene hypothesis posits that the rise of several of these diseases, including asthma, eczema and type 1 diabetes, all of which seem associated with malfunctions of the immune system, has been caused by improvements in hygiene of the sort that have helped get rid of other illnesses. Exactly how that might happen is unclear. But at the AAAS meeting, Brett Finlay of the University of British Columbia in Vancouver persuasively filled in some of the blanks in the case of asthma. Asthma is caused by chronic inflammation of the airways, and inflammation is an immune response. The thinking behind the hygiene hypothesis is that a lack of exposure to parasites and pathogens in what has become an unnaturally clean environment means a child's immune system does not develop appropriately. Evidence that asthma is a consequence of overcleanliness includes the facts that farm-raised children are less prone to it than city-raised ones. Farms are full of bacteria and other critters that provoke immune responses that those born by caesarean section are more prone than others. They do not receive an initial bacterial inoculation from maternal faeces and vaginal fluids, and that those treated with antibiotics as babies are also more prone. You're listening to My Big Bag of Onions.
Take a cardboard disc and punch two holes in it on either side of its centre. Thread a piece of string through each hole. Now pull on each end of the strings and the disc will spin frenetically in one direction as the strings wind around each other and then in the other as they unwind. Versions of this children's whirly gig have been found in archaeological digs across the world, from the Indus Valley to the Americas, with the oldest dating back to 3300 BC. Now Manu Prakash and his colleagues at Stanford University have, with a few nifty modifications, turned the toy into a cheap, lightweight medical centrifuge. They report their work this week in Nature Biomedical Engineering. Centrifuges' many uses include the separation of medical samples of blood, urine, sputum and stool for analysis. Tests to spot HIV, malaria and tuberculosis in particular require samples to be spun to clear them of cellular debris. Commercial centrifuges, however, are heavy and require power to run. That makes them impractical for general use by healthcare workers in poor countries who may need to carry out diagnostic tests in the field without access to electricity. They also cost hundreds, often thousands, of dollars. Oh, 
another happy about listening in Sydney. My name's Debbie Sim and I play for the Ale House. I love coming out, spending time with my teammates. It's family oriented, so I just love it. I play three times a week for this team. So, yeah. Once people see that you can play good, you have to keep up that act of playing good. It's hard. Do you find you get nervous playing darts? <laughs> yes, I do. I do shake, but I have to stand back, go forward and throw, and I can throw a lot easier. What sort of scores do you get in a game? Um, I've got a couple of 180s. Um, I've got 156 out, but normally around 120, 140 is my biggest score. Would you say that the darts is the excuse for the people to come together as a social group? I think so, yes. We all have fun here. We take the mickey out of each other. But it's just a good game and a good banter between us all. Would you say that the level you play at, do you think that, you know, if you continue to play, you'll move up to a higher level? Um, I hope so, yes. I do like playing and I. everybody says when I walk into a pub, oh no, not you again. So I think I've got around so yeah I think so yeah
Join me again soon for another journey through the pleasures of music, words, and sound. Be seeing you. Bill's Big Bag of Onions has been produced and directed by Adrian Cohen and is a guppy production for Cone Radio.